is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. We want to rightly divide the Word of God, receiving the Scriptures with joy, but searching to make sure they're true. We want to answer questions to the best of our ability, look to the Scriptures together to see if there are certain things we might be able to figure out. It's good to see you guys. Glad that you could join us here on this TruthQuest podcast. By the way, you can subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, There's full-length teachings. There's hot topics, which are shorter hot topics. Uh, Things about Christianity that are a little bit maybe controversial. And then there's our Q&A. And you can ask questions about anything, um, about apologetics, about prophecy, about Bible passages, And we're going to try to answer them, look to the scriptures to find those answers. Just write the word question in front of it, then write out your question. Make sure to reread it a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit your question. So we have our first question today that comes from a comment that was left about our Wednesday night study. We take our first question from the study that we had on Wednesday night. So tonight we're going to be talking about a parable in the last week of the life of Jesus, where the stage is being set for the confrontation between him and the religious leaders. And if you have questions about that teaching, then that will be one of the first things that we're looking at in our in our Q&A next week. Now, um, the question left said something like, are we who are alive today ever under the law? They had actually left a lengthy comment about how we are not under the law and never are under the law because the law was fulfilled and finished at a certain point in time. And I would agree with that 100%, but that there isn't another purpose for the law. The law was given as a tutor between the promise to Abraham and 1800 years later, Christ coming. The promise that Christ would come from one of his descendants, then 1800 years later, Christ came, The law kept them under guard until the Messiah came. And once Christ came, they no longer needed the tutor. They were not under the law. We were never alive during the law. So we are not under the law and we don't want to put ourselves under it. But that doesn't mean the law doesn't affect us. I have a scripture here that I want to show you that helps us to understand this principle. This is Romans 3, 19 and 20. It says, now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So it's written to those under the law that every mouth might be stopped, but here's a a wider scope and that, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the flesh will, uh, therefore by the deeds of the flesh, no flesh are therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for the law is the knowledge of sin. So law brought the knowledge of sin for them and for us. I know what sin is today because the Bible tells me. I know what are the worst things to do. What God cares about most. The mercy we give is the mercy that we're going to receive. The way we treat people is what God really cares about. But notice that little phrase right in the middle of this verse. And all the world would become guilty before God. That's the That was the law's purpose on a larger scope. We're not under it. But it becomes a mirror that we look into and realize, especially with the moral law. There's the ceremonial laws, there's the dietary laws, but there is the moral laws. And under those moral laws, we learn what is right and wrong and that everyone is guilty. Ray Comfort goes out onto the beaches of Santa Monica and other places and asks people, have you ever told a lie? And then he says, well, what does that make you, a liar? Have you ever took God's name in vain? What does that make you, a blasphemer? And then he says, if you're a lying, thieving, adulterer, blasphemer, and you stand before God, how's God going to judge you? So he's using the law to reveal to people who don't know Christ that they have a need in their lives for Christ. And that's the purpose of the law. Notice the end of this verse. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the wider scope of the law. We are not under the law. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And we've never been under the law because we're living in the time of grace. But law still has a purpose, a larger scope, that the whole world may become guilty before God. And 
that by the law comes the knowledge of sin. So people can't say, this isn't a problem. It's okay for me to have an affair uh, because I love the person. Well, the law says thou shalt not commit adultery and the knowledge of sin comes through it. So there is a larger scope of the law that shows us what God's standards are, even though we are not able to keep them 100%. So thank you very much. Um, I appreciate your comment that you left and I agree with the vast majority of what you said, but there is still a purpose for the law today in a wider scope. But there's so many people that have tried to live by the law who were not able to really go ahead and do that. All right, so um, let's see. Let's go ahead and take a look at our questions uh, that are coming in today. Andre has the first question again, and so we're gonna bring that in. And Andre says, back in his day as Saul of Tarsus, Paul persecuted Jesus, Acts 9, 4 through 7. So why didn't Paul pray for or forgive Alexander in 2 Timothy 4, uh, 15 and 16? So I, um, I want to look up the one verse. So we know that Paul persecutes the Christians in Acts 9. Is that Paul's conversion? Am I right in that? So let me just go ahead and take a look at Acts 9 really quick. I just want to make sure that that's Paul's conversion. Acts 9, 4 through 6. Um, and as he journeyed to Jerusalem, it came to pass. Okay, so that's Paul's conversion. And then I want to go to, let me go to 2 Timothy, and then I'll talk about uh, Acts 9 really quick, and then we'll take a look at this passage in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 9, 2 Timothy 9. Oh, 2 Timothy 4. I was like, there is no 9 in, in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 14 and 15. So I'm going to get there. Let me put this up on the screen for you. And uh, 12, 13. So we'll start. We'll start there. All right. Um, so let's go ahead and bring that on screen for you. And we'll talk about Acts chapter 9 first. So Paul has persecuted the church. He persecuted them with great zeal. He calls himself the chief among sinners because of that. And he cast lots against Christians that their lives would be taken. And Paul, in his writings, all the way through to the end of his life, makes references to him being that chief amongst sinner, and that he's not worthy of the call that he's been given. Now, none of us are, but Paul knew he had that in his life. It was like John, I think it was John Newton, who was a slave trader and wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved um, a wretch like me. He knew who he was because of the things that he had been involved in. So now we take a look at chapter 14, I mean, chapter, verse 13, um, and he starts talking about Alexander the coppersmith. Um, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord will render to him according to his works. Of whom do thou also beware, for he greatly withstood our words. All right, so the question that you have then is, uh, Andre, is why didn't he pray for or forgive Alexander? Um, forgiveness is, there. there is letting go, and who's to say Paul didn't, right? I mean, if we, if we pop back over and take a look at this again, um, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil, for the Lord will render to him according to his works. And that, of course, is if he doesn't come to Christ, of whom thou dost beware. So he's telling them to beware of him. So Jesus said, if someone asks you to be forgiven, then forgive them seven times in one day. That's in the book of Luke. And then another place he says, if you're offering your gift and you haven't forgiven someone, forgive them. I know there's a place where it says, go and make things right. This is not the same place. He, it's another place where it says, you're offering your gift and you have unforgiveness towards someone, forgive them. There cannot be complete forgiveness or, or we could say restoration unless a person repents from their sins. And then there can be a, a complete forgiveness or a restoration for forgiveness. Um, I, I remember years ago, listening to Dr. Laura talk about how we as Christians are supposed to give people, forgive people. The Bible says, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And she said, what about someone who's molested uh, what, uh, you? Are you gonna invite them over to your house for Thanksgiving? She didn't understand the principle of forgiveness, letting it go, not holding them um, 
to making, trying to make them pay for what they've done, but letting it go and forgiving, but not restoring. If they had repented, maybe then there would be restoration and maybe then again, maybe not. So Paul is saying he did me much evil and God will repay him for his deeds. Does Paul know that he's not going to commit his life to Christ? Maybe Paul should have prayed for him. Remember, Paul's not perfect either, uh, but Paul doesn't say that he's holding bitterness towards him, but he says, beware of him as he writes this letter to him. So I think that that's um, the answer. You know, why didn't Paul pray for and forgive Alexander? He may have forgiven him and he may have been praying for Alexander. We don't know that he didn't. He just simply says that he did him great harm and God will repay him for his works. Um, if he comes to Christ, then all of that will be forgiven him. And um, I see I see the conflict that you're talking about and who knows what happened to Alexander, but maybe Paul being apostle, an apostle knew that Alexander was never gonna give his life to Christ. Eh, maybe not, but nevertheless, um, you would still wanna warn someone if they're going on the mission field and there's someone there who's dangerous. And you might say the same thing. Um, Paul seeming to be more connected to God uh, taking revenge on someone, but God does say that. I, um, I'm, a, I'm God and I will avenge. And so Paul is just looking at a lot of scriptures that say that and being the one who would avenge them. At least that's what I think. All right, Andre, when you talk about forgiveness, it is a complicated topic because you've got people that have repented and people that haven't repented and you treat them differently, but you let all of them go. When the one man who was forgiven a great debt grabbed the man who owed him 50 bucks, he grabbed him by the neck and said, pay me everything you had. All he had to do to forgive him was let it go. It didn't mean he needed to be restored or still lend him money. It just simply meant that he should have let him go. Very good question though, Andre, I appreciate it. We have a question from Facebook from Paul Fran, uh, Fran, Fran. And Paul says, since God doesn't literally speak back to us when we pray, uh, speak for yourself, Paul. No, I'm kidding. I've never had God audibly speak to me. I've had people tell me they've heard God audibly speak to them, but I certainly think that's not the norm, right? Since God, and probably not even anywhere near the norm, since God doesn't literally speak back to us when we pray, how do we know what God wants us to do? Or if we are on the right path when we ask God, I understand God speaks through the Holy Spirit, but I feel many people are confused. This um, may confuse this with their own desire and will. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely possible. We can easily do that. So a couple of things. First of all, direction from God is in a broader sense. So if I'm looking for what car to buy and I start praying, what Lord, what car should I buy? What car should I buy? God isn't so concerned about what car I buy. There may be cars God doesn't want me to have, but I think there's a parameter of different cars that I could purchase. But what God really cares about and when he gives us direction in his word for his will is how we act in that car. I think we could go as far as saying that, hey, we may have a choice of marrying a few different people. And God doesn't always tell us which person to marry. We have guidelines not being unequally yoked. So there are guidelines that we have. But once we are married, we're told how we are supposed to live in that marriage. It's very easy to find out what God's will for you is as a husband. It's very easy to find out what God's will for you is when it comes to outbursts of wrath. And so the Bible says in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, that we may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And a lot of times we want to get precise. Which person should I marry? What town should I live in? What car should I drive? We start looking for those kind of things we can't find in scripture. But I can tell you how you're supposed to live while you're in that town or in that car or in that marriage. And that's what the Bible reveals. And so we have everything that we need. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the inspired word of God is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, 
that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. So everything that I need for life and godliness, I find in the word of God. And I don't need God to say to me, Robert, buy, you know, that this car, because I have his word, which tells me how I'm supposed to live. Now, the Bible gives us other directions about knowing God's will. It says in Proverbs 3, I think it's 5 and 6, to trust in the Lord with all of your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. So there's the last part of your question, which says, how do we know that we're not getting what we desire? Well, you lean not on your own understanding. You acknowledge God in all your ways. That is that you do pray about these things and you acknowledge God's goodness and work in all of those ways. And then God will direct your path. There is this teaching out there that the good, acceptable, perfect will of God are three different wills of God for your life. And you got to figure out what's good, but you might, you might get what's good, what's acceptable, or what's perfect. And we want the perfect will of God, but that's not what that verse is saying. It's saying that God's revealed will for your life that we find in the Bible is good, acceptable, and perfect. And we find that in the pages of scripture. It's, it would not be right for me to say, I have not heard God speak to me. I've heard God speak to me through his word, even though I haven't heard, heard it audibly. And as far as my desires go, I want to, I want to be able to identify what's of my flesh. And the Bible says, if you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the Bible also says to delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So you delight in him. If you're delighting in the world, you desire the things of the world. If you're delighting in the flesh, you're delight desiring the things of the flesh. But when you delight in God, abide in Christ and his word abides in you, you can ask whatever you desire because at that point they're godly desires and God will be able to give us those desires. And so when we are looking for God's will in our lives and looking for for what God wants us to do. There are things that we're not going to be able to find in scripture. And yet we have many promises that really help us to understand um, what those promises are that God has given us. All right. Thank you very much, Paul, for your question. I hope that that was helpful. As always, you can ask a follow-up question. We have a question here from um, Albert. Albert, good to see you. And Albert says, it seems that Isaiah 65, 20 indicates that while people will die during the millennial age, humans lifespan will return to what they were prior to the flood. Well, what, what are your thoughts on that pastor? All right. So it seems like Isaiah 65, 20 indicates that while people will die during the millennium age, human lifespan will return to what it is. All right. So let's take a look at it. Isaiah. 51, 65, Isaiah 65, verse 20. I'm still working on getting something that I can just type in and be able to pull it up, which will be much quicker than what I'm doing here. But this works. It gets the job done for right now. All right. So uh, let's go ahead and bring that on the screen. Here it says, there shall be no more events, all infants, um, infants of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. I've got the ASV up. Let me see if I can switch this to the New King James. I'm like, what is it talking about here? All right, there we go. No more shall an infant be there, live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. The child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner 100 years old shall be accused. They shall bind houses and inhabit them. Uh, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and of their fruit. Um, okay, so it seems, oop, didn't want to do that. Hold on. There we go. All right. So it seems to me that, it seems to me that we have um, him telling us that in the millennium that people are going to live to a certain point and to a certain degree um, that they did before the flood. I think that that's what that is saying, that God's going to restore the earth and God's going to restore humans to
to what it was before the flood. Many believe that it was the mercy of God to shorten our lives. Think about the main mistake that David made was when he was older, probably in his mid fifties. And think if we had 900 years to live, how many mistakes we would make. And so it's probably a good thing that our lives are the span that they are now that we don't make that many mistakes. And I think that maybe uh, when God does that, living under the millennium with God in his kingship and God being the one who does that work for us, what an amazing thing for you and me, uh, for, for those people living in that day and you and me being there, being able to see these things that are happening with these people that are living under the kingdom of God. All right, Albert, thank you very much. I do think it is saying that. Just the, the short answer uh, to your question is I do believe that the Bible is saying that they will be restored to what it was like before the flood. Um, we could, there are some reasons people think that life was shortened, that there used to be a cloud bank up in the sky and that a mist went up and watered the earth. And after it rained, that cloud, that cloud bank went all the way down on the earth and the UVs and the ozone um, takes its toll on us. And then again, maybe God just shortened man's life because he realized how much trouble we could get into if we lived a longer life than that. All right, so thank you for your question. We have a question here from Jari. Jari says, by whose authority did John do these things? What kind of answer would the Pharisees have given him? They answered. All right, by, who, by whose authority did John do these things? All right, so Jari is making a reference to Luke chapter 20, where Luke, where, um, Luke chapter 20, where Jesus is teaching the last week of his life in the temple and the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders confront Jesus and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And I think the authority that he thinks he's talking about there is the actual authority that he cleansed the temple and that he's teaching in the temple. He is a rabbi from Nazareth. He's not one of them. And they think, by what authority are you possibly doing the things that you are doing? And so Jesus says, well, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And that is the baptism of John. Was it from God or was it from man? The baptism of John was um, God anointing John. He was a priest. He could have gone God's way. And so the whole idea is authority and calling. When you are, who calls you? Is it God or men? Men put their stamp of approval through ordination, through seminaries on men that are never called by God. And some men that are called by God never get seminary approval or anyone who identifies them or ordains them. Much better to be anointed and ordained by God than not. And that's the issue. Jesus had all the authority in the world to be able to go and do what he was doing, teaching in the temple, given to him by God. But Jesus said, if you won't answer the question for John, then I'm not gonna answer the question for you either. All right, thank you, Jari, for your question. Um, a good one, and it really helps us too to understand, hey, we're looking for God to be the one who sends us out, the calling of God and the power of God. The recognition of men doesn't mean anything. One more thing about this. I remember when I received my ordination, which was after I had been a youth pastor for several years, and then I came out and started the church here in Tucson, and then Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque, Skip Heitzig, the pastor there, called me in, and the elders laid hands on me and prayed for me. Then they said to me, we are not instilling on you any authority or power. We are recognizing that God has given you authority, the gift of teaching, and that you meet the qualifications to be ordained, and they ordained me. They recognized it was God giving the ordination and not them. And I think that's really powerful, and I think that's really good when we understand that. They thought they were the ones that gave power and gave authority, but John the Baptist proved they didn't give John that authority, but John had it anyway. All right, good question, Jari. Thank you very much. Um, good to see you. We have another que question from Christopher Wright. And if you're here for the very first time, 
We're really glad you're here. Hope that you are blessed by the time that we take to try to answer questions through the lens of Scripture. So Christopher says, question, is dual covenant theology heresy, such as Hebrews Roots Movement and Seventh-day Adventist? Well, um, those are two radically different groups, Christopher. Um, Let's just take them one at a time. The Hebrew Roots Movement. Yeah, they will reject Paul's writings because they believe that they are that they are Israel because Israel was slaves in Egypt and they were their their descendants were slaves in America. And when you start talking about the Hebrews roots movement, you understand there are many different groups, there are many different um yeah, many different groups that believe many different things. And when you start to talk to them and try to carry on a reasonable conversation with them, there's a lot of venom. They'll just come after you with venom. And for that reason, I tried to discourage people from having any more than just a short, loving conversation with them, praying for them. Hopefully they will come to Christ. Um, but yes, it is heresy. They're, they are saved and they believe the laws accounted to, uh, applied to them. Um, the Seventh-day Adventist movement is different because one Seventh-day Adventist church differs from another Seventh-day Adventist church in that some believe that they just go to church on Saturday and that's what they think they should be doing and they don't account salvation and they don't believe anybody going to church on Sunday is, is taking the mark of the beast or is not really serving God. Other Seventh-day Adventist churches believe that they're only serving God and you have to go to church on Saturday in order to be saved. They are adding works to the gospel and they're not the only Sabbatarian group. There are other groups that are Sabbatarian who are every bit as into it as some of the extreme Seventh-day Adventists. There are some churches that you would go to, Christopher, as, a, as an evangelical Christian, and you would agree with everything that they're saying. They have the freedom to meet on Saturday if they want to, right? Romans 14, they have the freedom to meet on Tuesday if they want to, whatever day they want to meet on, they have the freedom to be able to meet on that day. However, once you start saying this is where salvation takes place, then there's a major problem. Whether that is baptized in the name of Jesus, baptismal regeneration, Sabbath salvation, anything else that you want to add to the work of Christ becomes a problem. So some in the Seventh-day Adventist church do teach heresy. Others don't. The only way to know is to talk to those who are there. You don't want to paint with this huge, broad brush. I don't know enough about the Hebrew roots movement. I'm familiar with it. I understand certain parts of it, but I don't know enough about it to be able to say that none of them are saved. But I know that much of what they teach are heresies. All right. So thank you very much. Um, and also that you really don't want to, you really don't want to tangle with them because, and, and, and who knows that just might be their way of trying to protect things. And some of you are called to that kind of ministry and to do those kind of things. And if you are, then great. Um, for me, I'm, I'm not into arguing, uh, with people. I'm just not into it. I just do not want to do it. All right. So, um, I'm not trying to, I don't try to convince or persuade anybody. All I do is go to the scriptures and then, then teach what the scriptures say and what I think they say. And when someone has a different way and they want to argue about it and they get angry, I just tell them, I don't want to argue. The servant of the Lord, the Bible says, must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, correcting those who are in opposition. So when someone isn't gentle, when someone doesn't come in love, then I have no interest in trying to hear what they have to say. They, they come in love, they can say whatever they want to say, and I'll tell them that. I'll say, listen, you can tell me anything. You can tell me I'm a heretic as long as you're nice about it. You can tell me I'm a horrible, rotten person as long as you're nice about it. As long as we walk in love doesn't mean I have to believe it. So yes, uh, Christopher, I believe that I don't, the vast majority of the Hebrews roots movement is heresy and much of Seventh-day Adventist is heresy. Although there are certain groups, Seventh-day Adventist churches that are backing away from it and just going to church on Saturday because that's what they prefer. All right. So thank you very much for bringing that up. I hope that that is helpful. Uh, We have a follow-up question from Jari. Jari says, 
Is it wrong for Christians to do yoga or use Enneagram? Thanks. Jerry, how is that a follow-up? Did, did I miss a question from you earlier? Um, all right, let's go ahead and talk about it. Um, yoga. There are a lot of Christians that do yoga that don't do any of the religious stuff that goes along with it. You just need to be careful. Yeah, if stretching and getting into certain poses and doing yoga that way, clearing your mind or thinking about God or meditating on him, that could be a positive thing. Now, there are a lot of people who are going to disagree with me on that, but I think that's the case. Um, the Enneagram, I think, can be, it can be helpful in knowing the different personalities that you're dealing with. Um, I also know people that get very obsessed with it. And it seems like it can be, it's, it's all they want to talk about and all that they want to do. There's also a book out there called Five Voices, and I like that a lot better. But for example, um, on our staff, there are people that will encourage you on anything you want to do. And then there are people who will say, whoa, why do you want to do that? Why are we making this change? Is this really important? And a pastor can see those people who do that as, as challenging, as someone who they need to get off their staff because I'm tired of being challenged. No, that person is more of a guard. They, it's good to have those people that will give you that check and ask you, why are we doing this? It doesn't mean that you can't say as a lead pastor, no, I think this is what God has in mind. Remember, a lead pastor is going to be under the authority of the elders or whatever, whatever type of church government you have. But he also has the right to lead the church in the direction that he thinks it should go. But you should never stop people that have different personality traits from giving you information. And once you realize that someone might be more of a guardian and you may be more of a visionary, guardians and visionaries can work together really well because they guard the things that you've established, but they also ask questions about visions and help you to really understand and know it. Now, that's not the Enneagram, that's five voices. Um, I think that if you use anything in place of scripture, it's bad, Jari. So um, I, I don't put a lot of stock in that and I don't do yoga. I don't do yoga because I don't think it's demonic, but I don't want to stretch myself into a pretzel at this point in my life. All right. So thank you for your follow-up question there, Jari. Uh, Psychman45, good to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. Good to have you here. Um, Psychman says, have you ever been in the king's or prophet's position? Disappointed in small prayer requests or have the blessing for which you were praying, depending on how many times you did something. Have you ever been in the king's or prophet's position? Trying to figure out what exactly you're asking with that. Um, never been a king. Don't want to be a king. Don't want to have the authority of a king. I want to be under the authority of the king of kings. Um, prophet's position. If I understand what you're asking. Yeah, I, f I feel like God gives me certain things that I'm going to say and get lays on my heart certain things that I want to say. And therefore, that would be the prophet's position. I think if that's what you're asking. And if God ever gives me words for individuals, and I do believe that he does, I don't know if that's the gift of prophecy or God just giving me certain things that I want to, that I, that I want to answer. Um, disappointed in small prayer requests. Again, I'm not sure what, what, what you're bringing up or having the blessing for which you were praying, depending on how many times you've prayed uh, that you did something. Um, again, sorry, psych man. I'm not quite sure what you're asking. Um, yeah, I've had answered prayers. I've been blessed. Um, and then how many times I did something. I'm not sure what the something here is that you're asking. So maybe you can just give a little clarification. And if I didn't answer your question right, to try to um, give me some clarification so that I can go ahead and answer it a little bit better. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. So let's see. We have, I'm looking down for another question, Alex. Um, so Alex has a question. Uh, so Alex says, 
Can people be freed from demons deliverance? And I'm going to assume that you're talking about non-Christians and I'll just go ahead and make this point. Christians cannot be possessed. The Bible says greater is he that's in you than he that's in the, in the world. Satan's in the world. The spirit of God's already in you. So you are possessed, but you're possessed by the spirit of God and your temple is the temple of the Holy spirit. And therefore a demonic spirit cannot be inside of you. Now the Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you and give no place to the enemy. So do Christians sometimes give places to the enemy and find themselves having problems because they have given place to the enemy? Yes. I think that they can do that. Um, can a person be freed from demons, deliverance, non-believers? Yes. I believe that that can be, that that can be the case, uh, that non-believers uh, can be freed. Um, but remember, Jesus said, if the demon leaves, comes back and find it cleaned and swept up, but empty, then he goes and gets seven demons that are worse than them. And he comes back into uh, that place. All right. So I've got to take a quick break here and do something really quick. I will be back in like, in like 10 seconds. All right. Did you miss me? All kinds of things happen strange when you go live. And uh, so the TV was on out and it had been put on pause and then it came on really loud. And I just wanted to make sure um, that it wasn't distracting you guys. I know it was distracting me. Um, so Alex, let me just get back to your question here. Um, you want to, you want to see someone come to Christ. And if someone has a demon, then yeah, you can pray for them to be delivered and there will be God does give us points of deliverance. He, the Bible says, behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will by any means hurt you. And I think that Satan's always attacking Christians just can't possess them. And so the Bible says, put on your armor and then stand and pray with your feet prepared with the gospel. And that's where the real battle takes place over the souls of men and women. Now, if I didn't quite touch on your, your, what you were asking there, Alex, would you go ahead and give a follow-up question and um, on demon possession? And we'll take time to be able to look at that. But yes, I do believe, um, I do believe that it is, um, that there, there is deliverance. Yes. But a, a Christian cannot be uh, demon possessed. All right. So we have a, I think a follow-up here from psych man, psych man again. Good to see you. Um, have you ever been in the, oh, nope, that's the same, that's the same question. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Uh, so if you can go ahead and just give a little bit more detail, maybe just ask one question, give a little bit more detail and I'll try to figure out, um, and answer your question, uh, with, um, with what you have there. All right. So if you're joining us for the first time, really good to have you guys here. Uh, if you have a question, then write the word question out write your question out, make sure it makes sense, and then reread it a couple of times and then go ahead and submit it. That way we'll be able to take a look at it, see what it says and see if we can't look at it in the lens of scripture. All right. But it's really good to see you guys. Really good to be here with you. Um, live, as I said, we've already had something great wacky happen because it's live a little bit earlier today, the power went out. And so I'm hoping that the power doesn't go out today. If it does, I guess we'll just end uh, R Q and a, all right. So if you have a question, write the word question down and then, uh, reread it a couple of times, write the word question before it, reread it a couple of times, and then go ahead and submit your question. All right. So I'm just making my way through the comments here and seeing if there's any questions kind of getting to the end here. There is a question from Anthony. I think it's Anthony Morales. Anthony says, good to see you, by the way, good to have you here with us. Anthony says, so I know that we are saved by faith alone. Amen. 
as far as a relationship with Jesus so that he knows us and we know him completely. Does the Bible completely cover and outline how to have a relationship with him? Or is it simply, or is it as simple as trying to be good, uh, trying to be God-minded and praying and communicating with Jesus every day and involving him in our everyday decisions, making and everyday, making an everyday life. Thank you, Pastor Robert. Always very good to see your face and hearing you teach. God bless you. Uh, thank you, Anthony. I appreciate that. So I think we got a couple of different issues going on here. I think number one is how we're saved. And I think number two, how we are sanctified. And there are, and there are those two different issues. First of all, how we are saved. We are saved by believing, receiving, and standing. I want to I want to pull up a passage here that talks about the gospel and talks about how the people were re- to respond to the gospel. And let me go ahead and bring this up for you. So here it says, um, uh, let's see, actually, let me go ahead and, sorry to do that to you. Um, I want to get to the right spot. I think it's the very first. I think it's the very beginning. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, stop. All right. Yeah, it is the very first verse. It's right where I was at before. Um, so Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, it, uh, the gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So we're saved by the gospel. It says, which I preached to you, from which I also received, but which you also received. So they received the gospel. And by which you stand, they stood in the gospel, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And I think he means believed in vain by some who believe and heard the gospel and believe it, but they don't put their trust in Christ. That would be the demonic faith that James talks about, where you believe God exists, you believe Jesus rose from the dead, but you don't want to live for him. And so you don't really believe in him. You believe those things about him. Then he says, for I delivered to you that first of all, which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So the gospel has a prophetic aspect. The Old Testament foretold that Jesus was going to die for our sins. And this is the gospel that he died for your sins. This would be that you're a sinner, that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, that all of we like sheep have gone astray and we need to come to Christ. And then he says, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas and by the 12. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. So these are eyewitnesses whom the greater part remained to this present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James and by all of the apostles. And so you will notice that back up in the top of this, they received it, they stood in it. And we also know the Bible tells us in several different places that you have to believe. Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. In John 1, 12, it says that as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. So you have to receive him, invite him in, but you also have to believe in his name. And when you believe in his name, then you find yourself being born again and being transformed. Jesus said, you must be born again for that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so we have to be transformed. Second Timothy five sixteen. all scriptures given by the inspiration of God is profitable for reproof for correction. Well, that's not good. And doctrine that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. A bit. Huh. All right. Has this been, has this been this fuzzy the whole time? <laughs> so all of a sudden my cameras have gone fuzzy. Maybe they went out, uh, during the, um, maybe they went out during, uh, when I lost power and now they are blurry, which is hilarious. All right. So, um, yeah, we need, we need some way for quality control. Um, so the rest of your question here, so we're going to go, just for voice here from now on, right? So, um, uh, question. So, uh, then the second part of your question, or is simply you're trying to be God minded 
praying and communicating with Jesus every day involving him or every decision making in everyday life. Now that's sanctification. That's having things sanctified by him and, and walking in the truth that he has for us. And yes, that takes us walking with him daily and God's renewing that inner man day by day. All right, I'm going to do the second thing. I'm going to take another break because it looks like things are just a little bit out of focus. I'm going to be back in just 10 seconds. I'm going to try to focus these a little bit. And then I want to just take a look at both cameras and both are out of focus. So let me just make sure this was out of focus too. Okay, that one's not, right? A little bit. That one's livable. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna go with this one here, and we'll just continue on. Um, so we're talking about sanctification. So yeah, I need to. I'm, I'm fellowshipping with Christ daily. My outer man's perishing. My inner man is being renewed day by day. I'm walking in the spirit, so I don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. All of that doesn't have to do with salvation. That has to do with my sanctification. I'm drawing closer to Christ. I'm learning how to walk better and be a better person and live better through Christ and for Him and the things that He has called me to do. All right, Anthony. Thank you very much. I discovered the um, the blurriness there on camera. Number two, live is always interesting. So interesting that it took me that long to figure it out. All right. Um, so, yep, just making my way through here. So, uh, Empress Kimberly has a question for us. Uh, she says, could you define heresy? This is the definition I found, the formal denial or doubt of a core doctrine of the Christian faith as defined by one or more of the Christian churches seems wrong. So yeah, I would say, so that's the definition. I would say that I consider something to be a heresy when it has been added. It's something new. Paul said, if anybody comes to you bringing anything other than what you have already been taught, let them be accursed. If we or an angel comes to you teaching you something other than what you have heard, let them be accursed. So when the angel Moroni showed up to Joseph Smith, and and we don't really believe that it was an angel, but even if it was, it was a spiritual angel that was a deceiving spirit and gave him something new, that Christians were anathema and there are new doctrines, that's heresy. If, if I all of a sudden came to you today and said, listen, I've discovered you know, I, I, I started um, power walking while I was praying in the morning. And I, I'm, I all of a sudden am close to Jesus, closer than I've ever been before. And I find myself really excited. And listen, if you guys can power walk in the morning for Jesus, there's something about that power walking and with Jesus that, that ties it together, then that's heresy. Because the Bible didn't talk about anything like that. And I use that ridiculous analogy because people do do those things. They bring up things that are not biblical at all, and they try to make them new, but they're heresy. All right. And so we want, you want to do a few things. You want to look into, uh, you want to look into church history, see what kind of things they were believing. And if you have something you think might be a heresy, did they deal with it in church history? Those are our foundations. They're not the scripture, so we don't treat them like that, but they are valuable because they've dealt with many of these issues that we're dealing with. They battle over what the Trinity is. And so when someone comes along and says, I think the Trinity is different. It's not three, you know, three persons, one in essence, it's something different. Well, I guarantee you they dealt with it in church history. And so those things become heresies. All right. Um, so there's the definition, but a heresy is something that you start to believe that's new. I like what Greg Laurie says. If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. All right. So thank you, uh, Kimberly, Empress Kimberly. I appreciate that. All right. So um, if you have a question, you can write the word question out and then write your question. Uh, Alex has a follow-up and I'm glad because I don't know that I got completely what you were saying, Alex. Alex says, what does the Bible say we can't have, where, where does the Bible say we can't have an evil spirit attached to our, or influencing us? Aren't we told in the Great Commission to cast out demons? 
Matthew 28, 20. Uh, no. I want to make sure about that, but no, that's not the Great Commission. You're talking about Mark 16, not the Great Commission. Let me go to Matthew 28, 20 really quick and pull that up. Mark 16, uh, Matthew 28, 20. And answer your question while I'm looking for this. Um, the Bible says that if you're in Christ, the evil one can't touch you. That's in 1 John. And so Jesus said, behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. If your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, Alex, how is a demon going to live inside of you? He can't. The Bible said, does it say greater is he that is in you than he that is in you? It says greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The onus on something like this, that you can be possessed or have an evil spirit attached to you or influencing us um, is on the person who's saying that that can be the case. Now listen, and I wanna, I wanna clarify this. The Bible says, give no place to the enemy. So is it possible that a Christian could give place to the enemy and fall under the enemy's control? Yes, but the Bible doesn't say to deliver that person. It, that person may need to be prayed for, but the Bible tells us how to deal with strongholds and how to battle against Satan. And the Bible never says, take a Christian in a room and deliver him. So the onus is on the person who believes something that the Bible doesn't talk about. This kind of deliverance that we never see in the book of Acts, that we never see in the epistles. Uh, it's like a lot of other stuff that we've talked about in the past. So your reference you were talking about was indeed Mark. I want to show you, um, this is Matthew 28, 20. Uh, Teach them to observe all things and uh, I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So that's the Great Commission. And no, we are not told to cast out demons in the Great Commission. That's in the book of Mark where it says, these signs shall accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. Um, if they drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. And they can pick up serpents. If they get bit by a serpent, yeah, it won't harm them. We know that that is not a promise for all Christians. He's saying, these things shall accompany those who believe in my name. He's not saying every person will have all of these things happen to them. And when people read it that way, it's a huge mistake. There have been Christians who have cast out demons, drank things and didn't die, got bitten by snakes. And so a church reads that passage and then they go and get rattlesnakes and they pass them out in their church and they're a snake handling church off of misusing that verse and people get bit and die because they're misusing the verses. And so you wanna take that same verse and say that every Christian needs to be praying for people to be delivered and put too much weight on deliverance. I appreciate you, Alex. I just think that this is misinterpreting certain passages to mean something that they are not. Um, where does the Bible say we can't have an evil spirit? Again, 1 John, if we are in Christ, the evil one can't touch us. Um, attached or influencing us, well, attached? Not sure what you mean by attached. Influencing, sure. We're tempted all the time. Yeah, we can have demonic experience influencing us. But am I gonna, should I go and pray for someone to deliver me and then suddenly have this grand new life because I've been delivered and then run around and telling everybody else you need to be delivered too because I was delivered. No, I'm, I'm gonna spend my time teaching the scriptures and not whatever experiences that I might have that might or might not be in scripture. So do I think that we can go to places and we could make a, a, a study, a Bible study about the way that demonic spirits are influencing us? The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts in heavenly places. So we put on our armor and then we stand and pray. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against you, but that was in the context of giving us the keys to the kingdom. And that's the promise. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. When we preach the gospel, which are the keys of the kingdom, people are going to get saved and they are going to come to Christ.
all right so thank you again for your question um if you want more clarification than that i'd be happy to uh, talk about it more if there are specific questions uh, that you have on this particular one all right so let's go ahead and take a look at another question that we have um i do appreciate you guys and uh, you do understand that there will be differences that you and i might believe things that are different and that's okay And um, so I'm, I'm just gonna, I, I don't know if I should do this or not, but I'm bringing this. It clearly says, teach them all things I have commanded you. They were commanded to cast out demons. So Alex, I know you're trying to justify what Matthew 28, 20 says, but it never says to cast out demons. It didn't, it, it says that in Mark 16. And so if you want to say that the Bible says to cast out demons then go to Mark 16, you don't need to try to place it in, in the Great Commission. The Great Commission was something else. Go out, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded them. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Mark 16 talks about um, casting out demons. And let's see how much time I've got. I got just a few minutes. Let me go to Mark 16. Let's just, let's just go see if we can find that passage really quick. Not sure that I'll be able to find it uh, quickly, um, but let me see what I can do. All right. So this is in Mark 16. I notice here they do call this the Great Commission. Uh, later he appeared to the eleven as um, as they sat at a table, and he rebuked their unbelief and the hardness of their heart. Oh, let me go ahead and put this on screen for you. And he rebuked them. Uh, because of the hardness of their heart who had seen him after he had risen. And he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it by no means will hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Then it goes on to, um, to, to, another, to another section. So these things here, if you're going to say that every Christian is supposed to cast out demons, then is every Christian going to lay hands on the sick and have them recover, drink deadly and it won't harm them, pick up serpents? And again, this is a passage that people have misused to say that it's for individuals rather than the broader sense of the church. So that's the application for this, all right? Um, you can't use this to say that we are supposed to run around casting demons out of everyone. When it comes to um, demonology, there's two mistakes people make. They either see no demons at all or they see demons everywhere. And the truth is in the middle. And in the Christian life, there's either demons everywhere or there are, or there are, are, are no demons anywhere. You and I do wrestle against flesh and blood, but this whole teaching of deliverance, I do not believe is right. You may, Alex, and that's fine. You can believe what you want to believe. Who am I to tell you what you can believe? But this verse, this passage is not, well, this passage is not for every individual Christian because there are Christians that take up serpents and try to prove their faith from this passage. This passage has been greatly misused over the years. All right. So let me just go ahead and take a look here. We'll see if we have any more questions. Uh, so we have another question from fact, check these hands. I think this will be our last question today. And, um, so let me go ahead and go there. So we want to go to Matthew 18. Verse six. Let me go ahead and put that on the screen for you. So this is Matthew 18, verse, verse 6. And the question was, let me just look at the question really quick. Um, was Jesus referring to children or to new believers? Ah, I think I know which one you're going to be talking about. So it says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble who believes in me to sin, it would be better for them if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. 
All right, so um, I, I think he's talking about both. And I think that because in certain places, he talks about those who believe, those are new believers and children. And I think that this is really important for us to understand that if you're hurting someone, it would be better for you for a millstone to be tied around your neck. He doesn't say that's what's going to happen to you. He says it would be better for you if that were to happen. And so I think that that is really, really important to understand. And so we don't want to hurt the faith of new believers. And we also uh, don't want to hurt uh, a child because both of these are people that Jesus cares about deeply and that Jesus will, you know, we're kind of back to where we started with Alexander and Paul saying, God will repay him for his works. So if, if you've done, if you've hurt children or you're hurting new believers, then repent from that and turn from it. Because the Bible says it'd be better for you that he'll uh, millstone will be tied around your neck and you would be cast into the sea. All right. So thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate you. And I appreciate you guys. Uh, love you. Stay close to Jesus. We have a service in an hour from now. We're going to be talking about Luke chapter 19, where Jesus through a parable prophesies what's going to happen to him later on that week. And he goes, gets into the motives of those religious leaders and why they turn him over to Jesus. All right. So you can watch that online or you can join us at 6 p.m. on the East Campus or 7.15. No, 6 p.m. on the East Campus. Uh, this is Saturday night. We don't have a West Campus service. All right. Uh, so God bless you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Thanks for joining us at our on our Q&A. We'll see you guys next time.